The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had a thought the other day and I wondered how far I could possibly take this, but it seems worth just attaching to the beginning of an otherwise unconnected episode. And that is just to wonder what the importance of associating a writer, an artist, a musician, a creative person of any kind to a certain place. How important is that? And does it have any bearing on how, I don't want to say successful, but how lasting that person's art is in the world? It struck me thinking about this, that uh, these are the names that came into my head uh, just before I came down here, just to see. Uh, James Joyce, you think of Dublin, you think of Ireland, you think of Bloomsday. T.S. Eliot, you think of London. Uh, If you're in America, you think of St. Louis or New England. Walt Whitman is Brooklyn through and through. Robinson Jeffers is the west coast of California. Robert Frost, New England. Um, Charles Dickens is London again. Dostoevsky is as Russian as Russian can be. And even Emily Dickinson, even the recluse, is the image that seems to come to mind for most people is either a meticulously maintained flower garden or just a closed room with flowered wallpaper. Now you keep going into the visual arts. The first person I thought of was Picasso. On the one hand you think of uh, uh, masculine Spain but also of Paris. Uh, Vincent van Gogh, despite uh, all of the years that he spent uh, outside of the south of France. It seems to be the south of France that you imagine him being and existing. And Impressionism feels French, basically, something like that. Uh, Stephen King, again, New England, Maine. Um, William Faulkner is the south. Philip Roth, if not associated with a place, I guess would just to be associated with a time in history, which is uh, America in the latter half of the 20th century. And of course, uh, Seamus Heaney, who you associate with Ireland, with Northern Ireland, with uh, the Troubles, perhaps. 
But then you get to even my favorites, and it's really hard to deny. Homer is Greece. Virgil is Rome. Dante is Italy, and you associate all of them with their time in history, um, the classical world, the medieval world, the world, uh, in the case of Dante, uh, hinging uh, into what became, I guess what we would call now the modern world, uh, leading uh, out of the Renaissance, Dante up to the Renaissance and out to where we are now. But even something uh, as unfamiliar to most people as the Finnish epic, uh, the Kalevala, that is, if anything, as associated with a single place as any of these, because it is a record, it is a folk and mythic record of a people, quite literally, the Kalevala is that. Um, this is very hard for me to say because no matter where I look, this is what I find. And I realize, um, what would anyone associate me with? Would they associate me with the Midwest? Would they associate me with Pittsburgh? Would they associate me with Brooklyn? I'm thinking of all the places that I've lived. Would they associate me with Northeast Ohio? Uh, is there anything about anything that I've written that would uh, link me to any of those places? I guess if anything that I've written lasts, perhaps I would be associated with the American Civil War, perhaps with uh, the poetry of that I've written about archaeological sites in old Europe. Um, but uh, I feel as adrift from any of those things as I do from the ground that I'm standing on here. It's only, it only feels like an accident that I am speaking to you now from a basement in a house in suburban Pittsburgh. Um, there are moments in the letters of Ted Hughes, I think that's when this idea first occurred to me, reading his letters where he is talking about being in America and just not getting it. Um, he wants to be back in England. Of him being in London, even, and just not quite getting it, and wanting to be out in the country. Um, I've said before that I've never had a job that has meant anything to me at all. Uh, is it too much to say that I've never lived anywhere that has meant very much to me at all, that has uh, contributed to my identity in any way. I suppose with the episodes I did last year on Whitman and his love life, and where I fastened myself on a word that his biographer uses, which is longing. Whitman is a poet of longing. and. Whatever we imagine his romantic life to have literally been, most of the time it seems that what he did was long for other people, long for their presence, and not necessarily uh, hope for any kind of fulfillment. Uh, in the same way, I find myself longing for other places. 
I have never, like Hughes, felt like I needed to be a poet of the place that I came from, the poet of Ohio or of Pittsburgh uh, or of America. Even with the long poem I wrote about the American Civil War, I didn't imagine that even if it ever catches on, that it would somehow put me in a stratosphere of American poets. It felt like the kind of book, the kind of poem that would put me alongside the poets of the world or the poets of history. Um, I have never identified with any place that I've lived, even my own country, the way that it appears that uh, Seamus Heaney has. And I'm struck again and again reading not just the Irish myths for the episodes in the, in the series that I'm sharing here, but also in the weekly Torah readings that I'm involved in uh, with my synagogue, the yearly round of Torah readings and the similarities that I find in some cases. And the largest similarities, which can seem merely literary to some, but to me is the root and the heart of all of it, is the, the importance given in both the Hebrew Bible and certain of the Celtic mythological texts. I'm thinking uh, most of all here of a, uh, of a wonderful, dense, uh, almost impossible book to get through, but it's remarkable in the same way. Uh, that was translated recently as, um, of course I'm forgetting the name now, but the, the idea that it goes by is the Colloquy of the Elders. Um, actually, I want to get the name of that down correctly here if I can, because I know the name of the translator. It is let's see. right. Uh, it's been translated recently as the Tales of the Elders of Ireland, and between that book and the Hebrew Bible, there is a huge importance laid on lineage, on family trees, going back and back and back. There is an immense importance placed on, as I've mentioned. Uh, in the episodes on the Celtic myths, on place names, on topography, on the history of a place, on what happened in that place, on the names that the place has taken. It was once called this, then it was called that. Why was it once called this, and why did the name change to that? Who lived here? What did they do? What were their names? Um, I mean, it's down to what kind of, at least in the Irish stuff, what kind of clothes did they wear? What kind of feasts do they have? And it goes on and on and on. And I realize that I have no interest in doing that for the place that I am living in now. I don't feel the need to do that for Pittsburgh or for the suburb that I live in. There is a detective novel that I'm working on which sort of gets into that that uh, sort of makes up a fictional 
history for the place that I'm living in now, but it's nothing like what I'm experiencing in these other places, in these other books, where the records of names, places, topography, landscapes, families, this desperate need to put it down in tradition, put it down because if you don't, then it won't last and it will be forgotten. Uh, put it down because it is the record of your family or of your tribe, of your tradition, of your people, all the rest of it. Um, there's no need to do any of that. And you could perhaps say that nobody is really feeling that impulse anymore right now because that's not what uh, art and literature and poetry is seen to be the vehicle for anymore. And that's a, a fair criticism to make, or a fair observation to make. It's not really a criticism at all. But even if it isn't uh, what art is for anymore, the idea that the way you get into uh, a certain kind of poetry, the way you get into a certain kind of filmmaker or novelist, uh, or even subject, is by having a fixed image of the author or of the subject in your mind and that that fixed image is associated with a country, a city, or a specific place in time in history uh, is quite striking. And so it's even more striking to me to discover that I really don't think that anyone would have that reaction to anything that I have done at all. And this isn't really uh, an excuse to bemoan that fact. Um, the only reason I am using the example of myself is for that most lazy of reasons is because I know myself better than anybody else. I could probably point to other people that I know um, and say the same thing. But the only other writer that I could think of, and here I am, I'm looking at the stack of books, uh, that I uh, have used over the past year in doing these episodes, and I see Studs Terkel, and immediately I think Chicago. Uh, that is what you do. Uh, George Orwell, again, you think of England. Um, the only person that I can think of who you don't associate with a place uh, is the American poet Wallace Stevens. There's, I thought it was very appropriate when I first bought uh, a paperback a long time ago of his collected poems that there is, on the cover is uh, a picture of Stevens and it's, uh, the background has been cut out so that his, his uh, face, his head from the shoulders up is placed against a background of stars. Um, not against any place, but against space itself. You don't associate him with anything. You might associate him, associate him with New England. Uh, you might associate him with uh, Key West. Uh, you might associate him with his job uh, as an insurance broker. But that's only if you are really interested in his biography. And very few people... Uh, see much of a need to get into Wallace Stevens' biography. And so that's 
interesting. Um, there is the funny story of Wallace Stevens and Robert Frost uh, meeting up in Florida and maybe even in Key West. And uh, Stevens is sort of jealous of all the honorary doctorates that Robert Frost has and all the fame he has. And what they say to each other is, uh, um, I guess, indicative of this idea that I had. And Robert Frost is supposed to, or Stevens is supposed to have said something to him like, oh, you and your poems about things. And Frost is supposed to have said, oh, you and your poems about ideas or not things, something, something along those lines. Um, there's no real end to this. Uh, it was just an idea, and I didn't really have anywhere else to put it except in the beginning of an episode uh, where I look at some quotations from other writers. And I suppose I will just put it right there, right now. And if you're still listening, you can go on and listen to something else. I want to get back today to one of my favorite series of posts that I've done here, and that was something I started last year called The Poet Speaks. Now, the title of that is taken from a song from Philip Glass's score for The Hours, and I've always been attracted to that title called The Poet Speaks. But I realized that to someone who doesn't know that piece of music, the title of the series that I was doing might sound like that I'm referring to myself, not the poets that I'm reading from. It can sound highfalutin and, and a little bit, uh, a little bit pretentious. And um, it seems the the better uh, title for this series, where I just read people talking about creativity and talk about it as well and comment on it is to just call it advice from so-and-so and so-and-so. What I've learned, if I've learned anything over the years of doing blogs and now um, podcasting, is that what people most desire and what they seem to want the most and what they go looking for the most is advice. It's the, the old joke of... Uh, supposedly doing self-help by going to read someone else's book about self-help. But I realize that's also true about myself. Um, I live off of, I feed off of the anecdotes of other writers, painters, musicians, artists, anyone who is creative at all. I feed off of the stories of just how they do it. And one of the first times I can remember doing that is was listening to or watching the Behind the Music uh, series on VH1 from a long time ago and their episode on Metallica. And I'll never forget uh, them talking about 
being in the early 80s and they had uh, they were so poor that they ate what they called ham on hand sandwiches which is exactly what you think it is they had no bread all they had were uh, cheap slices of ham and that's what they ate but in any case so the so to get back to this series that I will just now call advice from and this is basically taking three or four or five quotations from somebody and just reading them off and seeing where it goes and usually the result of reading this stuff seems to be that we find a way of upending the expectations that people are usually given about how creativity works, how writing gets done, um, how writers or creative people just deal with the fact that they are constantly making something. So we'll see if that happens today as well. The first quotation is a very short one, and I actually don't have the exact words of it, but it comes from Joan Didion, the essayist who just died recently. And I think it must have been in the, the documentary on Netflix about her. That's a, a wonderful documentary if you have a chance to see it. And she is quoted as saying something like, I only know what I think. I only, I only really know what I think. I only really know what I mean by writing. And that really struck me because, and I put it first here in this episode in the hopes that whoever does listen to this will hear this one first. It strikes me that one of the tragedies about creative life is that so many people never get around to doing it. We have all met people, and we may be those people, who say, I've always wanted to be a poet. I've always wanted to write a novel. Um, or in a larger sense, I've always wanted to make a movie, I suppose. Or I've always wanted to be a painter or a musician. And we all know people who say those things who just never did it. And in a way, what Didion is saying here is the, is the tragic truth of creativity, which is you will never know if you could do it until you do it. Um, I've noticed that recently, not just with writing one-page lyric poems, but also with trying to write a novel. Um, in many, in, in almost all instances, I have an idea of what the poem is going to be about. I have an idea of where the novel is going. But in almost every case, and especially with the novel, down to the day to day, it's a surprise every single time. You know that the detective is going to go over to so-and-so's house and talk. But I sit down and I don't really know how they're going to talk. I don't know what they're going to say. And you're sort of on that tightrope. And that is where you want to be. You want to be surprised. I heard that the mystery novelist P.D. James once said that she outlined her novels down to knowing the whodunit. She had to know who did it so that she could properly... Uh, plot the novel. 
But I imagine even in her case, even if you do know the ending, there have to be surprises along the way. There have to be things that you didn't expect that uh, got you into the door that you had planned to get everyone through. Back when I was a teenager and I first started subscribing to Writer's Digest, as you can imagine, especially now since I'm just reading quotations here, one of my favorite parts of the magazine was uh, the classifieds in the back of the magazine and where there had been in the space where uh, the editors had not been able to sell an ad, uh, there were there were quotations from writers. And one of them, I can't remember who, uh, simply said, if there is no surprise for the writer, there is no surprise for the reader. And this sort of gets to the idea of upending what we believe creativity, and then in this case, what we believe writing to be. Many people that I've come across who say I've always wanted to be a writer, what they usually mean, or what they usually end up saying uh, after that sentence, is something about how they are intimidated by the idea of writing. Um, I don't have the discipline for it. They've heard a story about how, uh, I don't know, Anthony Trollope or somebody like that was able to get up uh, every morning and write a thousand words, stop at word 1,000, even if it's in the middle of the sentence, and get up and go about his day. Or they've heard the story of, uh, I guess, John Grisham, I think it was, who was still a lawyer at the time, and the only time of day he had to write was uh, early in the morning uh, before he went off to his job, and that's how he got the job, his first novels written. Uh, all of these stories, and I'm sure there are others that sound intimidating to someone else, or just the idea of submitting something to a publisher sounds intimidating, or just the image we have of a writer, you know, being interviewed on TV or being interviewed in a magazine or having blurbs on the back of their book, and it all seems very mysterious and uh, very distant. But if you realize that it's not a magic trick and that by the time a book is published and someone is being interviewed or reviewed or there are blurbs on the book, that that is more the effect of the publishing and the promotion machine than it is of the writer. If you realize that all of these people are just sitting down to themselves, lonely in a room, and facing a blank piece of paper, just like anybody else would be, it becomes a little more manageable. So that when you say uh, it's intimidating or um, I don't think that I have something to say, I don't think that I could do it, or you think of your favorite writer. Right now, the person who comes to mind immediately is the Irish short story writer, William Trevor, who began his life as a, uh, as a sculptor, and also he worked to make money, because sculpting is not going to make you much money, uh, working in advertising in, uh, in London. And but by the time he was 40 or so, I believe, he published his first book of short stories. And from the time he was 40 until he died a few years ago, I believe he published 12 or 13 collections of short stories, 
each with 12 or 13 stories in them. Amazing, uh, amazingly uh, consistent in how prolific he was. And the stories are incredible. And I can imagine someone coming across a writer like that or just holding the brick of his collected stories in your hand or holding the brick of the collected essays of George Orwell in your hand or, in this case, of Joan Didion in your hand and saying, I can't possibly do something like this. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. Um, but really where you begin is with the first story, the first essay, uh, the first page of the first essay or the first story, the first sentence, the first word. Uh, that is what you do. Um, I've been struck by it over and over again as well, just as a matter of mental health as well, if you're just talking about journaling too, that you don't really, at least if you're a writer, if you're someone who expresses themselves in words or think that that is the medium you should take up, I found that I don't really know what I mean. I don't really, I don't really clearly know what I am trying to say until I try to put it into words. And from a, from a mental health standpoint, and a, a, just a, a, a journaling or a diary standpoint, that's immensely uh, instructive that if you take a few minutes or even an hour all told uh, throughout the week, just thinking about what is going on in your life and, and in your mind, and you try to put it into words, very often clarity can come a lot more than wandering around and thinking about it. Um, so all, all of those things are mixed in there with uh, Joan Didion saying, I don't know really what I mean or what I mean to do unless I actually sit down and write about it. So uh, the advice I would take from Joan Didion would be uh, just get down and do it. Uh, forget about the book covers, forget about the flashy designs, forget about the, uh, the stuff that distracted me as, uh, as a teenager, which was, you know, walking into Walden Books and seeing, the, uh, and seeing how all of William Faulkner's books in the uh, redesigned vintage uh, paperbacks all matched, the spines all matched, and you could tell someone had taken their time to, to make a shelf full of Faulkner look as attractive as possible. Just forget about all of that if you possibly can, if you possibly can. Uh, back when I was in high school, there was no social media to get distracted by and just get down with the words, with the story, with the sounds of words, the sounds of people, the story that you want to tell. That's what I would say. The second quotation is from Stanley Kunitz, the poet Stanley Kunitz. And uh, this is what he has to say. A poem has secrets that the poet knows nothing of, it takes on a life and a will of its own. It might have proceeded differently towards catastrophe, resignation, terror, despair, and I still would have to claim it. 
The poet Paul Valéry said that poetry is a language within a language, but it is also a language beyond language, a meta-medium, that is, metabolic, metaphoric, metamorphic. A poet's collected work is a book of changes. The great meditations on death have a curious exaltation. I suppose it comes from the realization, even on the threshold, that one isn't done with one's changes. Eternity. A losing battle, for in that abyss all egos, cities, nations, histories are buried. Even Shakespeare will be forgotten. The best a poet can hope for is to be remembered for a while, to pass from one generation into another, and to have some young person in another age open to a page and say, how beautiful or how true he or she must have been like me. And I love that for a lot of reasons. The first sentence uh, is a great clue to me for 2022. A poem has secrets that the poet knows nothing of. For some reason, the creative types and the people who teach these things in school and um, and at least the loud ones, I don't want to say everybody who teaches these things in school, um, the loud ones on social media and the loud ones in the media and the uh, people you are most more likely to hear from seem so petrified and afraid. Uh, we are clinging to our categories these days. We're clinging to our titles. And we seem to believe that if we can attach as many titles or categories or identities or explanations of identities to people and to ourselves, if we can put, all, uh, put everyone on some bracket that pretends that we know who these people are, if we pretend that a word or a category or a name can suffice to define people completely or an experience or what have you, uh, what also happens is that the people who make the art will tell you what it means or they want it to only mean one thing. They don't want it to be made use of by somebody else who they might disagree with. And what Kunitz is saying here is that is simply not possible. It's also not a very new idea. Um, it is the essence of the interpretation of uh, religious scripture it's the essence of why works of art last at all, because they can sustain multiple interpretations, multiple lives across the generations and the millennia and the centuries. Um, that is the reason why biographies are constantly being written about certain people. That is the reason that uh, the writers of these biographies will often say, it has been a generation, and we need to fix this person in our mind again. That's the reason that uh, certain books fall out of favor and suddenly rise up again. I think of Moby Dick being ignored in its time and suddenly uh, being resurrected. Um, and these days, uh, a lot of authors in the past who were ignored 
are being reconsidered. That is only possible because of what Cunit says. A poem has secrets that the poet knows nothing of. And I like, too, that he almost goes into the, uh, into the academic speak by talking about uh, poetry being a language beyond language, a metamedium. But then he makes it into poetry again, not theory. It's metabolic, it's metaphoric, it's metamorphic. He's not saying that uh, language is brittle and limited and that it can't contain experience, it can't express experience. He's not bemoaning the limitations of what can possibly be said in language. He is saying that language can do all of these things, and it does, and it will, and it will continue to do so. And that it will all go under at some point, and that the best we can do is to hope for a young person to come upon an open page someday and say how beautiful, how true he must have been like me. Um, I love that idea. A poet's collected work is a book of changes. There is very little stability going on. You are just keeping going. And I felt that more and more recently now that I've gotten into a habit, and I say a habit because it's lasted for a month and a half, and I'm sure by the end of this year we'll have broken into a different habit. But it's one where I, I have an idea for three different books of poetry, and what I've been able to do is spend one week writing archaeological poems again. I spend the next week writing poems for a, a long book that I want to do called The Great Year. And I spend the third week writing poems about true crime and spying and things like that. And what I found is that in the past, I wrote each poem of whatever it is that I was working on. I wrote each of them almost with a sense of their placement in a book or I felt that they were finished and they had to become part of a larger sequence or something like that. But with these new poems, especially since so many of them are rhyming poems, I'm writing them almost with the knowledge that, let's say, uh, if I spend the whole year and, I, and I'm able to write all of or just pieces of, say, 50 or 75 poems from these three books, I sort of know that maybe only 20 of them will be any good, and that if I'm lucky, maybe only 5 or 10 of them will actually be really good, and that the joy of it is just sort of sitting down at the end of the day uh, with a thesaurus and a rhyming dictionary and a blank page, and just hearing the music and trying to transcribe it, and that half of the effort is just in stretching. It's almost like exercise. Um, and especially with the rhyming poems, because I've never written so many of them or intended to write so many of them. There's almost uh, a feeling of, well, I have to be there to catch a sound or a song on the air. And that, or, or I think of a guitarist trying to find the right riff and you're just sort of playing around for a while so that I could write something that rhymes for an entire page and I don't hit a stride until the next page 
and you know that everything you just wrote was leading up to that. It's a very strange process, but it gets back to uh, what Didion was saying, that you don't really know what you mean and you don't really know how you're going to do it until you just sit down and do it. This is a, a quote. This next one is from the, the poet Billy Collins. And Collins is somebody whose poetry I have uh, never in my life been able to get into. Uh, a few years ago when Seamus Heaney died and I came across an elegy, a so-called elegy that Billy Collins wrote on the death of Seamus Heaney, uh, it was uh, pretty terrible. But what I've discovered is that if you are able to, to find the Paris Review interview that Billy Collins did, he says a lot of amazing things, and this is one of them. He's very wise in what he says about poetry, but I can't stand the poetry that he writes. But this is what he says. Uh, nothing precedes a poem but silence, and nothing follows a poem but silence. A poem is an interruption of silence, whereas prose is a continuation of noise. Plus, fiction is basically about other people, whereas poetry is about the poet. Two very different spheres of interest. And the most difficult question you can put to people who want to write poetry is this. Ask yourself if what you're trying to say can be said in any other form. Story, memoir, letter phone call, email, magazine article, or novel? If the answer is yes, stop writing poetry. Put it in an email, write a memoir, write a letter to your granny, use whatever form will accommodate what you're going to say. Stop writing poetry unless you're doing things that you can only do in poetry. And that means exercising your imaginative freedom because in a poem, you have the greatest imaginative freedom possible in language. You have no allegiance to plot, consistency, plausibility, character development, or chronology. You can fly. Clear the trees at the end of the runway, and off you go. So if you're not taking advantage of the giddy imaginative liberty that poetry offers, you should try a form, you should try a form that is a little more restrictive. So, the first thing there is that it's clear to me that, that uh, Billy Collins has never written a long poem or a narrative poem, because otherwise he wouldn't associate poetry with only being about the poet and never being about character or plot or character development, uh, because uh, that is where you go. I found great solace in this uh, when I finished my long poem about 10 years ago called uh, To the House of the Sun. And I was trying to understand what it was that I had been through. I'd spent 10 years writing this book. And then I read Collins's quote and I realized what, uh, I, realized what I had been through. Um, I had spent 10 years writing poetry the way other people write a novel. I think elsewhere in the interview, Collins says something like, uh, when you're writing a novel, you're, you come back to the novel every day. Um, you're not suddenly writing a new novel, right? You're, you're stuck with the story where you left off with it every day. 
But when you're writing poetry, you can just start a new poem every day. And I realized, having come down from 10 years with my poem, that uh, that was never the case. I was stuck with my poem every day. And the, uh, the elation that I felt from that, which was true, it, was, it remains the most thrilling creative experience of my life. But it was also uh, immensely exhausting and uh, draining. But the other thing that he says is also strikes me as true. Uh, ask yourself if what you're trying to say can be said in any other form. And the three books that I mentioned that I'm trying to write now, they, they all fit that. Uh, I realize that I cannot write uh, I can't. I can't write prose about archaeology. I'm not a. I'm not a trained archaeologist or historian, so I couldn't even write a popular account of even my favorite archaeology uh, archaeological anecdotes. Um, and I'm not someone like uh, the lady who writes Clan of the Cave Bear and all of that. I wouldn't be able to turn what I do know into uh, even a short story. I don't think so. I do it in poetry. Um, I don't know enough about, uh, well, actually, I don't know enough about spying, I can tell you that much, and, and all of that to be able to write a convincing spy novel. Although it's true that I've been trying my hand at a detective novel and I'm still writing poems about crime, but they're of different kinds, so maybe that's a bit of a flub. Uh, but the last one, the, the, my book, The Great Year, which wants, to be, uh, the, which wants to be something like the Canterbury Tales written after the apocalypse, uh, that struck me as being something that needed to be poetry, because it struck me that if any kind of language would survive after all of that, it would have to be something, something like poetry. I also like the idea that Billy Collins says that, uh, and Collins is halfway a formalist, would you say? He seems to, to, to have uh, some, uh, some awareness of that in his mind from what I've seen. It's nice that he still says that poetry involves giddy imaginative liberty. And that's the other thing we seem to expect from poetry from those who have always wanted to write it, but who never got around to writing it, or who have started, but it's all very glum and autobiographical and, and, and very serious, is that we have the image of the poet and the bard and the, uh, and the prophet in mind, or something like that, or of, uh, or of I don't even know what, uh, so many cliches of what a poet is walking around, being a bohemian and being depressed. Um, it's very, or, or the idea that it just needs to be very deep, whatever, whatever that means, right? Um, it's nice to see him say that it's fun, that it's giddy and imaginative, and that it's freeing, and that, uh, where is it, uh, clear the trees, and at the end of the runway, uh, off you go. Uh, that needs to be said, that it's a, 
that there's a looseness and a freshness to it if you allow it to come. When I was trying to write the spy poems recently, trying to write a poem about how the KGB went into someone's apartment and uh, set up the wires and the microphones and the tape recorders to bug the apartment, or when uh, the, the Russian embassy in London, the KGB assumed that the Russian embassy in London was just festooned with, uh, with microphones and cameras and all of these things that the British had put there. I was trying to figure out the way to write a poem that talks about these things. And the, the voice that came out was a playful one where you almost imagine uh, someone talking about Christmas decorations where the, where the microphones are festooned everywhere, something like that. It was, it was only because I was open to that kind of voice that the voice actually uh, appeared. And we just need to be open to that kind of playfulness because I think as we've learned, as, uh, as it's taken me a while to learn, and as I think Shakespeare is the good teacher in this, is that humor isn't necessarily uh, lightness. Uh, humor, as we know, can be a great hint to mourning and tragedy as well. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with, with that kind of tone to take. The, let me see here, the very last thing comes from the Canadian short story writer Alice Munro, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And in the introduction to her uh, collected short stories, uh, this is what she says. I did not choose to write short stories. Uh, choose is in quotes. I did not choose to write short stories. I hoped to write novels. But when you are responsible for running a house and taking care of small children, particularly in the days before disposable diapers or ubiquitous automatic washing machines, it's hard to arrange for large chunks of time. A child's illness, relatives come by, or relatives come to stay, a pile-up of unavoidable household jobs can all swallow a work in progress as surely as a power failure used to destroy a piece of work on the computer. You're better to stick with something you can keep in mind and hope to do in a few weeks, or a couple of months at most. I know that there are lots of women who have written novels in the midst of domestic challenges, just as there are men and women who have written them after coming home at night from exhausting jobs. That's why I thought I could do it too, but I couldn't. I took to writing in frantic spurts, juggling my life around until I could get the story done, and then catching up on other responsibilities. So I got into the habit of writing short stories. And here, if you forget that, if you forget who said this, if, if you forget that at the end of all of her uh, writing, she would win the Nobel Prize. If all you knew was that this was uh, a woman living in Canada 
who started writing in the 1960s, I believe, and who was a housewife at the time. Uh, this is the perfect answer to, uh, to what uh, I mentioned earlier. We all hear the stories about, as I mentioned, uh, John Grisham or uh, Anthony Trollope, all, all these other people, who have found these steady habits to get their writing done, usually in the morning before everybody gets up. Now, someone other than Alice Munro may have realized, you know, I'm not a morning person. I can't do that. I guess I won't write. But that's not what she did. She says, that's what, why I thought I could do it too, but I couldn't. But then she says, I took to writing in frantic spurts instead. You can imagine her writing a paragraph or two pages at a time in the middle of things. And that's a wonderful way of doing it. N none of these things, as I've said before, are prescriptions. They are not uh, lists of things to do uh, in order to get that novel written or get that poem written. They are hints followed by guesses, as T.S. Eliot would say. They are hints followed by guesses for you to find whatever your habit might be. And... That reminds me that of, of what Billy Collins said, too. Um, not just, let me go back to what he says. Uh, ask yourself of what you're trying to say can be said in any other form. Uh, and the question that Monroe is, a, is answering is, ask yourself if what you're trying to say is something that you can say given the current time constraints that you have. So in the one sense, you could have also have had someone else, uh, a parent, could have had me five years ago when my daughter was born, uh, saying, all of my time has been eaten up except for napping or at night when I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm in prison, I can't write, and I'm not going to even try. Or this, or in the case of Monroe and feminism, it could be something like, Look what happened to women writers. They get stuck and they, uh, they're forced to take care of the kids so they never have time to write. Uh, instead of seeing it as a constriction or uh, a, uh, a, uh, a prison house of some kind, whatever the restriction is, and instead you find out what you can do within the limitations that you are given. And it seems that Monroe was able to do that and in many ways, the same thing could be said about writing uh, small poems. I don't think I've written so many short poems in my entire life, except since my daughter was born. And I've only really been able to uh, truly write a novel since she was born, uh, since she started going to preschool after, uh, after all the COVID fun closed schools down last year. So you're inevitably responding to what is going on in your life. And there's no real way around that. And there's almost no reason or excuse to moan about it beyond a few minutes. One of the things that has struck me more and more over the past many years is... Uh, is that nobody is waiting. I mean, I mean, unless you are 
Stephen King or Philip Roth or uh, I don't know, think of whoever comes to mind when you think of the word uh, famous writer, whether popular or quote-unquote literary. Uh, unless you're someone like that, nobody is waiting around to see what you're going to say. And in a sense, that's very freeing because that means you can say whatever you want. You can go wherever it is that you want. If you are unburdened by the expectations of what you should be doing or of what other people think you should be doing, if you can really achieve that, and I don't even know that I really have, but uh, I'm able to grasp it when I do, I'm able to hold on to it for as long as I can when I do, that means that you can really get it done without anybody looking and without anybody expecting it or wanting it or uh, requesting it or knocking down your door for it. But then the flip side of that is how do you get it in front of people once it is done? And uh, as I've mentioned here, that is the uh, that is the immensely difficult part. And so that is today's episode. Um, if you have any questions, if you have any responses, do send them along to uh, Human Voices Wake Us, the number one at gmail.com. If you have any uh, suggestions, if you've come across any other quotations on creativity from from other people that have helped you out, do send that along as well. And thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.